Hello, I'm Emma Louise Coffey and you're welcome to the Dairy Edge, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. On this week's episode, we caught up with current Grass 10 champion Brian Daniels to get his insights into running a successful, sustainable dairy farm. And I first asked Brian about the background to the farm. Well, I'm the ninth generation farming here. Um, it's been worked down through the families. Um, my father took over the farm uh, back in the late 60s. It was currently at the time about 130 acres. He built it up to 264 acres when I went to Cadalton back in 99. And uh, I took over the management the following year. And uh, we slowly built it up. Um, it's owned, The vast majority is owned within the family. And then we have some lease blocks joined in. So um, this year we're currently farming um, 172 hectares, um, spread over three parcels with the home block here in Rahin Aran of 120 hectares, which are used for the dairy herd. And then talk us through, Brian, the evolution of the dairy herd. Like in, in your father's time, you know, he essentially doubled the land area that you were farming. And did cow numbers reflect that? It did, actually. He, he was very progressive in his time back in the late 60s, early 70s. He realised that um, a farmer without milking her uh, milking herd um, would not be not, not sustainable uh, for a family. So um, he grew from roughly somewhere around 10 cows. He built up to 140 cows milking through a four unit um, just before quotas came in. Um, he got hit with brucellosis and managed to build the herd back up to about uh, somewhere around 90 cows uh, when quotas were introduced. Um, in the following number of years, he did buy some parcels of ground with quota. Um, when I came back home here first, it was roughly around 92,000 gallons at the time on the farm. So enough to sustain about 90 cows. And looking then to your farming career, Brian, you mentioned you returned home in 2000. So I suppose not to put an age on you, but you're, you're farming now um, 20 years. So talk through your fra- farming career to date and, and maybe one or two of the biggest lessons you've learned in that time. Yeah, uh, I was very lucky when I was in, uh, I went to Cadalton, which is only about five kilometres down the road from the farm. Um, halfway during that term down in Cadalton, uh, I was looking at probably doing a diploma in dairy and down in Clannacilty. Um, also looked at going possibly to reseed in Scotland. Um, was throwing up these options around in my head because livestock was the, the one thing I was really interested in. Um, contemplated shortly for a while would I go into carpentry, but it was the farming that, that was the real interest. Um, and about April that year, when I was in Cadalton, my father turned to me one afternoon in the milking parlour and he said, Brian, what do you want to do? Uh, my answer was very short and simple. He said, uh, I said, um, I quite simply just want to milk cows. So at 19 years of age, he, that evening, he just said, right, there's a the farm, do as you wish with it. Um, so I agreed that I'd stay at home for a year, sort out the farm, get it running with them properly. Um, we were having issues with staff. It was around the time the Celtic Tiger was kicking off. Um, so I agreed I'd delay my further studies for a year, get the farm running and go from there. Um, so yeah, at 19, I had full control. Everything barred a bank account and uh, took over the farm. We were milking roughly around 110 cows at the time. We were, mixed herd because we were also contracting um, we used to run as a, a, a decent size contract and business cutting pit silage and various other bits 
um, that was scaled back, um, concentrated on improving the herd. And um, there was also a sizable beef, uh, calf to beef in, uh, business on the farm as well. So um, yeah, we, we worked away in improvement. A year into staying at home, I was getting on well. Had a bit of concern when I went home first that I wasn't ready for it. Um, joined a local discussion group and knew that if I was going to farm, I had to be the best I could be. So I tried to educate myself further, even though I wasn't in college. Um, so, um, yeah, I worked away there. got the farm, started to home nicely. Kind of gave up on the idea of going back to college because the trust that my father had put into myself um, and just kept going at it. Uh, one of the big turning points was about 2000, yeah, it was 2003, uh, a letter came in through the post from the Irish Grassland Association of a month study tour to New Zealand and hummed and hawed would I go and kind of put it to one side and about three days later while spreading slurry driving up the road I said if I, if I didn't go now I'd never go. So went, went home, filled up the form, rang the office, booked my place and that trip probably still stands to me. And I realized that whatever I was thinking of doing at home was small scale and probably a bit short-sighted. Um, seeing the farms in New Zealand and meeting the other farmers on that tour definitely woke me up and uh, gave me the mission to drive on. Um, so went home, started pushing a bit harder. 2003, started getting a bit uneasy. So my father realized that Probably that I was getting ready to probably take a step away from the farm if, if nothing happened. So um, he brought me in on a partnership. Uh, I took over his debt uh, for a 27% stake of the farming business. So I was bought in at that stage and continued to run the farm. Uh, 90, uh, 2005, I joined the Cadalton Discussion Group. Uh, this is a regional discussion group. Uh, that was another big turning point. Uh, larger more grass focused farms in the group and that has been a, a big point uh, going forward and and still a member of that group and still have a lot of faith in them um so yeah we've we've tipped along 2007 um we uh, started looking at the business to see how sustainable we were going forward in terms of keeping two families on the farm so uh we we looked at we ran a number of long terms five six year plans uh, we looked at keeping the farm, the dairy herd and, and the beef business going. Uh, looked at uh, dropping the beef and going large scale dairy in at the time. We also looked at um, converting to organic um, because we were extensively stocked, growing a good lot of grass, using a lot of clover. So uh, we threw those three options into the pot and the one that came out was the increasing the dairy herd, um, maximizing numbers. At the time, we were looking at going to about 250. So, um, yeah, we, we tipped away at that and built away. Uh, got up to just before quota was removed back in 2014-13, we had grown to about 160 cows. And uh, when quota was removed, we, um, we took the big jump and, and increased further. So um, this year, we're currently milking just about 290 cows. Um, plan is to increase it a bit further running all our own replacements as well so we are so that brings us roughly up to date here at the moment
And just to pick up on one of the points that that has come up uh, a couple of times during that conversation and it's discussion groups. So you mentioned you're in a local discussion group, the Kildalton discussion group, and you also mentioned, you know, the, the study tour, which in effect is similar to a discussion group format. How important are discussion groups for you, Brian? Uh, hugely. Um, when I came home first, because I was only just straight out of college, I was quite young. I was very cautious and and almost afraid of would I run the farm correctly? Uh, how would I keep grass out in front of the cows? Um, they were my main concerns. It was getting involved in the local discussion group, the Wine Gap group, that gave me the first bit of confidence. Met some very good farmers in that group and started learning the basis of grassland management. And it was one of the farmers in, in the Wine Gap group that actually introduced me into the Godalton group. Um, the Cadolan group is a bit more hard line. We, we have certain rules in the group. You have to measure your grass. You have to submit the figures. Um, we have full open uh, discussion on financial performances on the farm as well. So um, where I started with the Wine Gap group and still involved with them, they're a very good practical group. Um, the Cadolan group has kind of then moved into more farm business planning and, and things, how to run a larger scale, how to manage staff, financial, all that type of stuff. The study tour to New Zealand was the, I suppose, the pinnacle that realised that I was capable of doing more than what my original goals were. So looking to current day then, Brian, you know, you're at 290 cows. And if we look at current situations on farms, the big topics will be grass and breeding. So if we look at those specifically and, and firstly, from a grass perspective, some farmers are beginning to feel a pinch in terms of grass growth, while other farmers are feeding up to two thirds of the diet as supplement. Where are you at from a grass perspective today? Yeah, we've had um, a fairly good year up to date. Um, we were cruising along nicely up to last week. We measured there on last Thursday, the 6th, and um, we had a, a significant drop in growth. We went from growing 85 for the last three weeks down to growing just a little on 40. Um, knew the farm was starting to dry out. We're quite elevated here as well, so we were getting a little bit more rain than most people. Um, so on that, it timed actually quite nicely with the first cut because I, I was aware that the weather has been particularly dry and that we weren't getting the same level of rainfall that we were potentially heading for a drought situation ourselves. Um, so where we are today is the average farm cover is currently 647. Um, our rotation last week was, was running at 18 days, which would not be sustainable going into a drought scenario. Um, our first cut silage ground, which is accessible to the cows, had um, covers of about uh, between a thousand to twelve hundred on those, so um, we brought all that ground back in for available uh, for grazing. Uh, we're currently grazing that at the moment. That has stretched our rotation length out to twenty four days now. Um, cows are milking very well. We're currently feeding two kilos a meal, and um, yeah, this this plan would follow us nicely for two to three weeks easily. Um, we actually got um, a mill of rain last night and with the current forecast, it looks like we'll actually um, get into the chance that we will pull out of the silage ground, close that back up for a second cut and we'll be back on the dairy platform by the weekend um, going into covers of 1,400, 1,500 again. So, yeah. 
some of them are a little bit stemmy, but um, a quick graze off them now will we'll take them back and, and get the residue back down off them. And, and then focusing our attention on breeding for a few minutes, can you give us some information, Brian, um, about the breeding strategy on your farm, looking to maybe what you did pre-breeding, um, your target breeding season length and, um, and so on? We're supposed the last five, six years, we're starting to reap the benefits of the management that was put in on the farm about 15, 20 years ago. Um, back then, we, I took the, the view that I would run a no intervention type system on the farm. Um, that if the cow wasn't good enough to be bred, we didn't want a heifer from her. So um, we've taken it, we've done the heavy lifting back 10, 15 years ago. And as a result now, um, this year we done no pre-breeding. Um, we watch the cows during the spring. The main priority coming through the spring is that every cow calves safely and cleanly. Um, cows that held retained, uh, retained leanings were recorded. Body condition was managed, managed and uh, maintained right through. So we didn't want them dropping off body condition. So the cows came through the spring very well. Um, we tail painted the day before breeding. So we tail painted on the 4th of May. Uh, started breeding on the 5th of May. Um, after 21 days of AI, we've uh, achieved a 91% submission rate. Uh, we're currently just gone on to week six, uh, going into week six. So um, we have about five more days of, of AI left. Non-return rates are running somewhere in the region of about 77% as of last night. Um, so we'll do six weeks of AI. Um, only the top 50% of the dairy herd is actually bred for dairy replacements. The rest all gets um, Angus. And that's from, we don't need the same amount of heifers as we used to, but also from a labour point of view as well. And we have good demand for those Angus calves. Um, the plan now with the uh, come this weekend is there's a stock bull being released and he'll be let off for about four weeks. So, he will. so there'll be 10 weeks of breeding altogether. And that's quite different to the standard and the norm of a 12-week breeding season. Does that follow on your trail of thought in terms of, you know, compacting everything and, and having cows that are, are fit for breeding? And if, if they're not fit for breeding, they're not necessarily fit for your system. The plan is, and has been for the last number of years, is that calving is, is a very labour-intense time on, on the farm. Um, so what we've done now is, all the dairy replacements are only bred uh, are only calved down in the first three weeks. Um, so this we are able to put in the labour when it's needed to get all the, those heifers safely out of the cows and, and get them on the rearing program. The Angus is then followed through. So after the first three weeks of calving, you're starting to get a bit tired, a bit worn out. The Angus is the cows are able to manage them very well, able to calve on assistance and everything. So we're able to scale back the labour required in, in the calving box. Um, and then by the time we have Everton calved down in 10 weeks, it's a nice short time. You don't actually, you physically don't get worn out like we would have 10 years ago when we were doing longer, longer calving seasons. Um, so it's a bit from labour, but it also then, it, like you said, it tightens up the herd. We're able to get out on grass early. We're able to get our peak demand to match the peak growth that occurs on this farm. Um, so it's, it's a combination of running the grass system that we do uh, and then the big benefit is when you have all those cows calved early, they're ready for breeding once you get to the, the first week of May again. So. And looking then to the, the, the system that you have, 50% of the herd 
um, you know, the, the, what you define as the bottom 50% of your herd are bred to Angus. So I suppose um, a question there in terms of what are the criteria that you're using for to identify what's above the line and below the line in terms of, of um, good cows that will breed replacements? Yeah, the, the main the, the main criteria is that we need an easy care cow. Um, running larger numbers uh, and, and trying to do it with, with hired in staff and a team, um, we need a cow that doesn't need a lot of attention. So we need a, a healthy cow. Um, that's the main criteria. It has to have good fertility. So it has to calve early and be able to maintain itself in the herd. Uh, and then we get down to kilos of milk solids. Um, we generally ignore the first lactation animals, uh, give them a chance to bed in. By second lactation, they have to be doing over 460 kilos of solids um, and have to be doing it at high percentages. Um, We're cre- uh, creamery-based price uh, milk here. So our, our milk goes for evaporation down in Bellevue. So we need a high solid, high concentrated kilo of milk solid. Um, so yeah, we get down to that third lactation on, cows have to be doing over 500 kilos of solids. And I suppose one of the main the main points and, and reasons to chat to you today, Brian, is that you and Gail were crowned the sustainability and overall grass 10 champions um, in 2019. Um, and I, I guess I'm particularly interested to chat to you about the sustainability piece. And, and I suppose to start off, what is your idea of a sustainable dairy farm? Yeah, um, this, this is a conversation that Gail and myself have had over a number of years um, to be fully sustainable, this is the way we look at it, is that the farm is able to survive everything that's able to come at it, be it financial pressure in terms of dropping milk price, be it um, maintaining a, a, and, and keeping a good staff around us, um, down to in, the environmental things as well. So we have to be able to grow enough grass that's able to maintain the herd. We don't like feeding large amounts of bottom concentrate. We have a, a maximum target of 400 kilos fed per cow. Now that varies down to if we get a bad drought here or something strange, but that's our target. So um, yeah, it, it's bringing all those things in and then that leads back on then to the, the more social things as well. Um, if, if the farm is sustainable on those things, we should be able to do it in, in a high standard of environmental welfare. So the water that leaves the farm has to be of the highest quality, um, reduce emissions. Uh, we're even starting to get down to potentially starting to look at putting in solar panels to reduce, first of all, our carbon footprint, but also it means that we're more profitable in terms of that we're not relying on bought-in energy either. So we, we bring in all kinds of things. And it's even now with a young family is that we're starting to look at the lifestyle end of it. Uh, I have been guilty that I've put in a lot of hard hours on the farm to build it up. But the farm will not be sustainable if I wear myself out, my family leave me. Um, or they, they grow up realising that a daddy killed himself working on the farm, I'm not going to do the same. So we want to bring everything with us. So that's our idea of sustainability. So looking into some of the specifics that you talk about in, in terms of the idea of a sustainable dairy farm, Brian, you know, the first thing you mentioned is labour and there's a follow up in, in terms of the lifestyle piece that you mentioned there. And looking firstly to labour and we see milking as one of the, I suppose, the biggest jobs on, on a dairy farm. And at the you're currently milking 290 cows and through a 44 unit rotary you know a lot of people would say with those cow numbers it's hard to justify the investment of a rotary what was your thinking there 
Yeah, the, the parallel was an interesting one. Um, back in 2015, if you asked me, I would have said the parallel we had, we had a, a 22 unit um, herringbone. Uh, and it was a great parlor. It was good and fresh. It was doing a great job milking cows. But the spring of 15, I was doing three hours in the morning by myself uh, trying to milk the cows. And we had we had changed slightly in the year before as well that we had gone to myself and hired labour on the farm. And we started realising that having a 22-unit parlour and trying to push 300 cows through was going to be hard trying to attract and retain staff on the farm. And we're to, people are able to drive bass better farms than us to come work for us. So we wanted to position ourselves in the place that we were the best farm that people wanted to work for. Um, I also had a shoulder injury that the herringbone was starting to wear me out. So it was a combination of attracting and retaining staff, but also that I was happy to do a milking myself. And if I was happy in that parlour, the staff that were coming in to help me would have been happy as well. So yeah, in the summer of um, uh, 16, we, we, we took out the, the herringbone and uh, we, we built the rotary. And that has had a huge effect on us now. Staff are happy with it. Milking is down to in the afternoons or this time of the year, you're able to put the cows through between an hour and 20 minutes and an hour. Um, but also it gets down to doing the likes of herd vaccination, AI, everything can be done on that parlour quick and efficiently. So it's, it's there really to, to help run the farm and attract and retain the staff. So I guess that 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 is a form of social sustainability, not necessarily completely linked to you know the the, the grassland piece, but for a sustainability measure from your perspective. I guess then another point to pick up on, Brian, you mentioned you know in your standard grass growing year, ye target four hundred kilos of concentrate. Can you map that out in terms of the profile of when you'd ideally feed that four hundred kilos across the the lactation? Yeah. Um... Yeah, this this comes back a bit more to our. our I I'm a real grass-based farmer. It's 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 what tricks my mind. It's it's what I like. Um, I want to maximise the amount of grass I'm able to grow and utilise on the farm. Uh, and going on ideal stocking rates and everything. The, the the plan that we're running now is, we start calving roughly around the first of February. Uh, cows go out to grass straight away. During February, they they vary between depending on grass availability, between two kilos to roughly about four kilos. Um, that follows through in through March and into the first two weeks of, of April. Um, we then drop down to about a kilo just to keep uh, minerals and mag into the cows, keep the cow flow going as well. Ideally, in an ideal situation, and we have done this a few years, is that we have the cows off meal before breeding. Um, this year, just due to the, the, the dry weather and peaks and troughs in the growth, the cows are still on meal at the moment. But the plan will be by hopefully if growth picks up, we'll have the cows off meal as quick as possible. Uh, generally, meals then stays out of the diet until roughly the, the first, second week of September. Uh, it is only then int introduced to help us build up our wedge of grass for the autumn for our final round. Maximum feed rates at the end of the year is two kilos. Um, uh, if, it go, if the cows are eating more than the meal is able to balance the demand, we'll actually go in with um, surplus bale silage that was harvested off the, off the platform. Um, so I don't like buying in that feed if I can grow it on the farm myself. 
And looking then to fertilizer, um, you know, in terms of the sustainability piece and, and, and on your farm, what is your target in terms of fertilizer inputs for the year or, you know, and do you intend on reducing that in the future? Yeah, uh, the fertilizer back pre um, expansion time, we, we worked a lot of clover swords here on the farm. And there was a number of years that a lot of the fields didn't actually get any chemical nitrogen. Um, now, we were very extensively stocked at the time as well. Um, so we have experience at clover. Um, I don't like spreading any more than I absolutely have to. Um, we don't spare on P and K or lime. Um, the soil has to be of the right indexes. Um, and if the soil is of the right indexes, we're able to skim then on, on the nitrogen. Um, so roughly on the dairy platform, every hectare gets somewhere around 220 kilos of nitrogen and down on the heifer ground, that can be reduced down to roughly about 50 kilos to the hectare, uh, depending on clover content. Um, so we're trying to get more clover re-established on the farm. Um, the last five years, we've actually been using protected urea. Um, kind of stumbled across it on a point on a price point five years ago. And um, once it was explained to me that it actually helped to reduce the emissions from the farm, we focused completely in on it now. And this year, all nitrogen going out is all protected urea. And then looking to the overall stocking rate, so we have a fair idea now of, I suppose, the core um, inputs in terms of concentrate and fertilizer that that fit in the grass based system. But, you know, you've mentioned uh, you've had various levels of stocking rates and and so extensive at some points that organic farming was a, a potential option. Where do you see stocking rate or say optimum stocking rate for your particular farm? Uh, yeah, um We've done we've done a couple of of um, calculations to to get our ideal stocking rate. We've used Chagas formats. We've used Dairy NZ formats. The average of all of them um, come in at two point four eight. Um, now some people will look at that and go, but you're you're growing over eighteen tons on the dairy platform last year. Um, this this is the ideal stocking rate right across the entire farm, all ground gra- grazed and and, and farmed. Um, it allows us to make our full amount of winter feed and then get away with buying in as little amount of feed as possible. Um, so this is building to our sustainability going forward, that regardless of whatever changes might come in nitrates or phosphates rulings, we already have a farm that's capable of running a sustainable stocking rate and maximising the amount of grass we can grow and utilise. And then looking to, um, I suppose, some other measures of sustainability that are not necessarily on the radar for every dairy farm at the moment. But you're looking at the biodiversity piece and in particular hedgerows, Brian. Can you give us some, I suppose, a background into what your interest is in terms of biodiversity and what it can add to your dairy system? I was always interested in in the wildlife end of the farm. Growing up, being around a young kid wandering around the farm doing what I was doing, playing in streams and all that. I was very, very aware of, of everything that was on the farm. My father had done very little altering of, of, of ditches or hedgerows on the farm as well. Um, we did do a lot of uh, reclaiming of, on ground that we, we purchased in terms of drainage and stuff. But it was always a case that we get the field right and then we leave the hedges alone. Um, we're quite elevated, as I mentioned earlier. So shelter is, is an important end on the farm as well. Um, 
back when I was a young teenager, I remember going off with my father and we laying some skiocks at the time. And that kind of triggered a bit of interest. So we were in reps as well back in 2000, or in 97, my father joined reps. Uh, we went into the, um, the various schemes up along. We're still in gloss at the moment. So um, we, we were doing hedgerow laying, rejuvenating, trying to keep the shelter and keep everything. It's nice to go out and see the farm in a healthy, fresh environment. Um, but also when we do have visitors up on the farm and or we meet people out and around, it's great to be able to say, well, like if they have an anti-farming vibrant, and we're able to explain exactly what we're doing on the farm. We've rejuvenated hedgerows either by coppicing or laying. We've planted new hedgerows. There's trees being planted every year. Um, and even one of my... I've discussed it a few times. One of my own personal KPIs is when I get down to the bottom of the farm where the stream leaves the farm, which starts actually underneath our farmyard. It's great being able to look into that and seeing it crystal clear and seeing the little fish and the various vertebrae swimming around in it. Um, that's nice to see. And it's, it's something that's going to be coming more at us in the future is that we have to be able to show that we are benefiting and improving the environment. So yeah, that's it's kind of a personal one, but it's being built more and more into into the farm and business going forward. So Brian, you mentioned um, that the farm is quite elevated. And I suppose just to pick up on that point, you know, in an ideal world, we would have all um, attended the farm open day um, with you in April and we would have you know, got an idea from, I suppose, driving to the farm, the, the bit of climbing that we would have done um, in terms of the scale um, of your height. Can you give us a picture in terms of what your height is, say, relative to sea level? Yeah, um, here in the, in the yard in Rain Iron, we're, we're 920 feet above sea level at, at just outside the parlour door. Um, we vary from 780 feet at the bottom of Rain Iron and we go up over 1,000. Um, there's roughly in the region of about 30 hectares of the farm above the thousand foot contour. Um, we, we, we go up a small bit uh, higher than that. We have an northern survey point at the top of the farm. When you're up on top of the hill, we have the full view of South Tip, Wartford, uh, cross into Wexford and, and Mount Leinster up through Carlow, see parts of Leash. Uh, on a clear day, we can see the spire of the church in Tramore. Um, so we have a, a, a quite a view. To give an idea of people on a map, um, we're located pretty much halfway between Kilmagany and Piddletown here in South Kilkenny. Um, if you're in Cadalton College, as many people have been, if you look out the front of the, the house across the lawn in Cadalton and you look up into the hills, we're up on the hill in behind those. We're up on that range of hills. Um, our, our next door neighbour in, in terms of hills would be the likes of Sleeve and Lamont. We'd be looking straight across at it. And and are there any limitations to farming at such a height, you know, from the, you know, the normal spring calving grass based perspective where, you know, the, the typical grass growth curve, are ye hit at any points as a result of, of farming at such a high, at, at such a height? Yeah, the, the, the farm is quite different to most farms that'd be on lower levels. Um, winters can be harsh up here. Um, we're quite used to snow cover. Um, and even the, the students that come up on the farm, I, I, I tell them that they will see snow every year. Um, so, yeah, uh, winters are harsh. We, we, we get quite a strong amount of wind as well. Uh, rainfall is, is higher as well. So the last number of years, we, we've gotten between 1,300 and 1,400 mil of rain, which 
the average for a Kilkenny City or the Greenfield farm would have been down around the 750 mark. Um, but look, it, 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 it plays to our advantages. We, we, we're aware of every spring is, is going to be cold and um, we're not going to get the same growth rate as other farms. So we calve a bit later, but we do know, and every year, we get a higher peak growth. Um, it's not unusual for us to run three or four weeks over 100. Um, we have measured growth rates up here across the farm, averaging 147. So uh, what we miss in the spring, we gain in main, main season. Um, so it's just a combination of tweaking the system to, to, to maximize the farm. Um, and once we have a run, we're very, very close to, to drought safe. It's very seldom that we've actually ever felt a real pinch in drought. 2018, we had it for a short time, but we came out early. Um, so, and, and this year, looking at the weather forecast and the rain that we got this morning, yeah, we, we're going to come out and, and get returned to normal growth rates fairly quick, so we should. I think on that note, Brian, will finish up and, um, you know, that statement is the envy of a lot of people across the country at the moment. But I suppose there's a trade off there. They mightn't have as much hardship as you would have in, in the winter and the spring. Um, I, I'd like to thank you for um, a really enjoyable conversation today, Brian. And I suppose we can take particular um, uh, tips and hints for you from you in terms of maybe looking at the overall picture and, and the idea of um, a more sustainable farm, you know, looking at different things like um, the slightly more extensive stocking rate at roughly two and a half cows per hectare, um, you know, looking at your breeding strategies, really tightening up um, the, the herd in terms of a fertile um, healthy herd and also then looking at the inputs onto the farm and, and this idea of white clover to potentially reduce the amount of nitrogen spread. Thank you Brian. Thank you Emma Louise. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of the Dairy Edge podcast and my thanks to Brian Daniels for joining me on this week's show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey and join me next time for your Dairy Edge.